Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. And I'm delighted to say this week we're joined by Chris Clark, the best-selling historian of Germany, author of The Sleepwalkers, a very widely read book about the origins of the First World War, whose many fans, I believe, include Angela Merkel, who got her cabinet to read it. I'm looking at Chris to see whether he's going to nod. And we're going to be talking about Germany and about Mrs. Merkel's trip to see President Trump, among other things. We've also got Helen Thompson, Chris Bickerton with us. We have too many Chris's, so we'll have to work out a way of distinguishing between them. You'll probably be able to tell the difference. Chris Bickerton wrote an article last week in the New York Times about Angela Merkel. Because this is mainstream American journalism, they very helpfully gave a headline which tells you what's in the article, so you don't have to read it, but still think people should read it. I'm probably going to paraphrase it, but I think the headline was roughly, Will Angela Merkel Save the West? Don't count on it. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And if that wasn't enough, we will at the end of this podcast also talk about India and Modi's triumph. Germany first. Chris, a couple of months ago, we talked about Mrs. May's trip to Washington. So now it's Mrs. Merkel goes to Washington. And one of the challenges for all European politicians, I guess, is to judge have the rules of the game changed or not? Are they going to Washington in order to, as far as possible, establish some kind of continuous relationship that fits into their previous view of America and the rest of the world? Or has something fundamentally shifted? And I'm I'm guessing that's probably an even more acute question for the German political establishment, which maybe has a greater attachment to continuity than any other. I don't know. And certainly Mrs. Merkel's personality seems to be one that I can't believe she's particularly thrilled by the idea that the world might be a completely different place than it was 12 months ago. And we've got Brexit to factor into that too. Is your sense of, I I can't think of another phrase for it than the German political establishment is obviously not a monolithic thing. Is your sense of how they are thinking that they are genuinely alarmed that the world might not be the place it was 12 months ago? I think like like all other political establishments, the German political establishment doesn't like unpredictability. And they're, they're worried about Trump for that reason, and so are Germans in general. 78% of Germans stated in a recent poll that they were anxious about um, the effects of Trump's politics on the world situation. Only 58% said that they felt a similar anxiety about Vladimir Putin. So that tells you something about the attitudes. I think the main difference is predictability. Putin is relatively predictable, at least in the kind of thing he's likely to try, but Trump isn't. That said, I think that Merkel is unlikely to have really deep difficulties with Trump. She was actually quite uncomfortable with Barack Obama. It wasn't as close a relationship as it's often claimed to have been. She found him cold and aloof. It was difficult to build a really warm personal relationship with him. She felt left high and dry over the Ukraine. She felt she was often dropped by the Americans and left to negotiate or to communicate with Putin on her own. And so I I think she's hoping that there might in some respects even be an improvement with Trump. She's used to dealing with slightly ditzy male characters of this kind. She's, she, she saw off Berlusconi and um, a bunch of others, you know, Vladimir Putin is another, of course. She got on very well with George W. Bush. So I think that it's, it's not necessarily a relationship that is foreordained to break down or to come to a negative culmination. And your sense of her is that she's someone for whom personal relationships are very important. So this is about making a personal connection rather than about sort of high politics as a sort of geopolitical strategy or something like that. 
I think she does believe in personal relationships. I mean, there wasn't, she certainly, I mean, the relationship with Bush is surprisingly close and warm. It still is today. She still rings Bush regularly to ask his advice to get the American view on world developments. So that's a, a relationship that's endured. Uh, she do, didn't have, as I said, this kind of relationship with, with Obama. But, you know, remember that scene in the White House where she leans towards Trump and wants to shake his hand and he doesn't even notice that she's, she, or he either doesn't notice her or, or ignores her. An extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary act of civility but nonetheless she's trying to make a connection there and you can see that she's leaning towards him and so presumably he so i didn't know this presumably he knows that she calls george w bush for advice and i can imagine if you're donald trump that would bug you more than about anything i can think of to know that the german leader is calling the man for whom he has genuine contempt for advice about the state of the world with Trump as president. Yes, and a man who he knows has genuine contempt for him. I mean, that, exactly. that could be the single so most irritating diplomacy, feature. that's quite... <laughs> Absolutely, that could be the single most irritating feature of Angela Merkel for Donald Trump, given how he relates everything to his own self-esteem. But then there is also clearly bigger issues at stake than just whether she gets on with these guys or not. And you know, Trump tweeted after the visit, fake news said that we didn't get on, we got on great, but... The Germans are still ripping us off. They owe us a hell of a lot of money because they're not paying enough into NATO and so on. Does that scare them? It doesn't really scare them. I mean, it's a ridiculous claim because there is no double entry accounting book or instrument in which these things are balanced against each other in the way that Trump is implying. But um, the Germans have been thinking hard about this question of increasing defence expenditure for a long time, and it's drifting upwards. They're going to move up to 200,000 for about 160,000 men to 200,000 strength in their peacetime army. And eventually expenditure will reach something like the 2% of GDP that the Trump White House wants. So the Germans are moving in that direction. There's a a broad consensus. Within German society, it's a different picture. Only 42% of Germans are really keen on increased defence expenditure and over 50% are not happy about that prospect. Germany is an unusual political culture in that it's a place where foreign policy tends to divide the domestic political landscape, whereas domestic issues bring it together. In other states, it's often the case that foreign political questions unite, whereas domestic questions divide, but in Germany it's different. Isn't it the case, though, that the really hard question for Merkel and the Germans about Trump's position isn't really about NATO? I mean, they're used to presidents in Washington complaining about Germany not spending enough money on defence. That's been true for a long time now. The harder question is the trade question, because Germany has now got you know, a trade surplus that's pretty much 9% of GDP, and they're not so used to presidents in Washington wanting to beat them up about it. They're not. And one very interesting thing about Merkel is who she took with her when she went to Washington. She took the CEO of Siemens and also the CEO of BMW, which has a huge presence in the United States, a massive plant in South Carolina, which is a Trump voting region with 9,000 employees and a huge turnover and 450,000 cars a year coming off the production line. So Germany has a big economic presence in the United States, as well as as a trading partner. And clearly, bringing those two guys along with her was a sign that she intended Trump to think about the whole package, not just about the political relationship from state to state. And do you think that means that she thinks that that actually, ultimately, Germany has leverage in this because of the level of foreign direct investment from Germany in in the US? Because you could look at it and say, well, actually, the size of the German trade surplus in relation to the US does put Germany at a disadvantage if Trump, and I think it is a big if, is serious about a protectionist trade agenda. Yes, that's true. Absolutely right. But um, he's going to have to balance that agenda against the damage he might do with a protectionist policy in respect of German direct investment in the United States itself, which is, as I say, very considerable. So we bumped into each other the morning after, I think, the Brexit vote. It was my memory. And you were 
like a lot of people in this town, a bit <laughs> shell-shocked. <laughs> but also, you immediately, we were talking about how this would look in Germany, the, the sort of astonishment, in a sense, for many Germans, that Britain would take this step. So we're a lot further on from that than we are from Trump's election. This is a slightly ridiculous either-or question, but you, do you think that the sort of reverberations of Brexit still exceed the reverberations of, of Trump winning in that actually for Germans, it's how to deal with Brexit that is the, the basic challenge now? I spoke to many Germans connected in various ways to the political, to political circles directly after Brexit, and I must say there was a genuine sadness and shock about Brexit. And a lot of people took it personally, you know, what did we do? Where did we go wrong? <laughs> we tried so hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Except <laughs> and, they didn't. <laughs> and they didn't try that hard. But, you know, but the Germans were aware, of course, of the very anti-German drift in a lot of the pro-Brexit propaganda in the, in the British right-wing press. They picked that up and they noticed that. So it was a shock. I think how Brexit played out after that had to do with the sort of follow-on. And so a lot, there was a huge amount of interest in Germany in the outcome of the Netherlands elections. And I think there's been a big sigh of relief that there at the moment isn't a kind of, you know, cascading effect that Gerd Wilders' support levels had gone down, his support base has shrunk, and that it looks like the sort of democratic centre, dominated in this case by the centre-right, is going to hold in the Netherlands. And I think also the anxieties about Marine Le Pen somewhat depleted. I mean, it, it could still be that she pulls out a victory out of the hat, but it looks less and less likely. So in as much as Brexit seems unlikely to produce a kind of domino effect. And that was the fear, was it? That was the fear. And in fact, the opposite seems to be happening, that the Trump victory in the United States has produced a fall in support for the AFD, for the ultra-right movement in Germany, which is anti-EU and very anti-Merkel and is, is mounting extremely sort of personal attacks on her. So it looks as if the centre is sort of gathering and will hold in Germany as well as in, in the Netherlands and possibly elsewhere. Because Chris Bickerton said when we talked about the Dutch election, you called it right. You said that Wilders had peaked and the pattern would repeat itself, that he would underperform his polling, which he did. You also called it right that the big story was the collapse of the centre-left, which was more or less wiped out in that election. So that's presumably where the disanalogy is here, because maybe in some broader sense, Germans are breathing a sigh of relief that the Dutch election seems to have shown that a kind of populism has peaked. But for Merkel herself, the threat is Schulz. And the threat is a resurgent centre-left in Germany. So those two stories actually now going on different paths that what we're not going to see in Germany is a collapse of the SPD. Are we? In Germany, I think they described it as the Schultz effect. I found it quite puzzling, I have to say, and quite surprising. I'd be very interested to know what uh, Chris Clark makes of it. The SPD was brought into the broader embrace of Angela Merkel and her centre-right party in such a way that I think took the edges off its political programme, some of its policies. The minimum wage, for instance, was taken by Merkel. I've heard it described that this grand coalition effectively was the dissolution of two parties into one grand people's party with Merkel at the top. Now, this was the case not very long ago, so all of a sudden there's been a very quick reversal in the fortunes of the SPD. Martin Schulz was elected head of the party just a few days ago with 100% of the of the vote. So it's always a, a bit suspicious in an election, isn't it? So it's it's it's, really? it's incredibly surprising. So the question wow. really is what is what is going on here? And I think it does tell us something a little bit about the nature of German society, which we may not see when we focus very much on Merkel and her political longevity. There have been changes taking place. I think Schultz's support comes from the fact that he's willing to question 
the direction that's been taken in German domestic economic policy. He's the one who's beginning to raise some concerns about labour market reforms. He's focused very much on boosting unemployment benefit. He's speaking, if you like, to people who who haven't lost out dramatically from the German export boom, but they haven't really gained from it. What might be called in this country the just about managing? Well, I suppose... Or maybe German just about managing is, is, is better than British just about managing, but... It's always surprising to me, at least, when, when you travel to Germany and you know that this is a, an incredibly powerful country economically, great success story, massive export surplus. Um, some of the German brands are really global brands. And then you go to the country and you don't feel as if it's in any sort of boom. And the reason is that the German growth model is a very simple growth model, which is that it focuses relentlessly on competitiveness and exports. And within the Eurozone, that means keeping wages down, essentially. So it depresses aggregate demand. Germans aren't spending in the way that Brits are spending. So you don't get a feeling of it being a particularly prosperous country, though in aggregate it is. And I think Schultz is in some way emerging from what has been this kind of slow-cooked problem in Germany about spreading the wealth. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And Schultz has been really consistent about this. He's been speaking for years now about the a socially cold neoliberal Europe and denouncing Europe. This is when he was a European politician as president of the European Parliament. And um, and he's bringing that same concern to the German scene, whereas Chris says there's a huge receptiveness to it. And the, the 100% result is quite extraordinary. The people who were there speak of it as a, they said it was like a revivalist prayer meeting. Others have called it a coronation mass. There was a real a sort of exultant mood there. So Schultz does appear to have this galvanizing effect on the SPD milieu. And just picking up another point that Chris made, that you know the, the, the German political scenery is, is complex and it, it's, it's not just about parties, it's about these sort of socio-cultural milieus which continue to exist and which are contested then by different partisan formations. And this old social democratic milieu, which is a regional, concentrated in particular regions and particular social strata, well, the prospect is opening up of, of Schultz reconquering that space. And that's what, of course, the SPD hopes he will do. And winning back, above all, those voters who've deserted the SPD to vote AFD. So does the SPD not face the challenge that all other centre-left parties face, which is the split between its kind of metropolitan liberal support and its more core working class, potentially anti-immigrant support? I mean, so I'm asking this out of complete ignorance. Has he managed to straddle that divide or is that divide not there in the same way that it is in France, in the UK, in the Netherlands, in the United States? I think the context for German politics is fundamentally different than the other European countries that we've been talking about and for the United States because there there simply hasn't been a crisis of German power or a crisis of the German nation state in the last two decades. I think it's fair to say that there has for different reasons in the other countries that we're talking about. You know, German power has risen particularly obviously within the context of the EU in relation to the Eurozone, but not only in relation to the Eurozone. So you're not going to expect there to be a kind of domestic backlash against the consequences of failing power, as we've seen to differing degrees in Britain, France and the United States. So in Germany's case, there is still clear space for a centre-left party that did the old things, as Chris said, that social democratic parties did. The interesting thing about Germany is is that the Social Democrats, after the Hartz reforms in the 2000s, which were reforms of the German labour market to address the problem that Chris said about wage competitiveness in the first years of the euro, gobbled up the Social Democrats. And then Merkel occupied some of the space that they had occupied. So Schultz is claiming background that should have been there in many ways 
all the way along. But the poor quality leadership of the Social Democrats before him ensured wasn't the case. So that would be the economic explanation. But is there not then the same cultural tensions between university educated, metropolitan, broadly cosmopolitan, left leaning voters, and more rooted or provincial or less metropolitan more working-class voters. Does Schultz speak to both? I think that, um, I mean, thanks to Hegel, uh, Germans... We haven't done Hegel ever on this podcast. (laughs) Thanks to to Hegel and and his various disciples, Germans do still believe in the state. And there's a much higher tolerance for taxation than in, you know, Anglophone cultures. This idea that one can shrink the state down to a tiny remnant is not popular in Germany, except amongst a small political fraction. So I think that, you know, the readiness to embrace a mildly more strongly redistributive tax structure is greater than one might expect. There are some echoes, however, with what's going on in other, other, I don't know what we call them, advanced democracies or consolidated democracies, other Western countries in Germany. I mean, Schultz is riding on a wave. And as soon as people think you can win, people are drawn to you. The same thing's happening in France. People look at Macron and they think he can win. And all of a sudden, Macron has all these friends he didn't know that he had. So Schultz has has drawn the party together. But it's a bit of a gamble. I mean, this criticism of labour market reforms, which is the bedrock of Germany's position in Europe and in the rest of the world as an exporting nation, is not overwhelmingly supported across the board. There are concerns, I think, within the SPD, and there are people who accepted this drift of the SPD towards the centre ground, who are thinking, well, hang on, this is a pretty risky thing to start criticising. This is really what our success has come from. Now, it's working at the moment, but I think the test will simply be in the election. It'll be how many votes really can he win on this platform. And I've seen it described a number of times that his language is that of left-wing populism. Now, I don't know how true that is, but it's certainly the case that the fact that Merkel has carved out such a large part of the centre ground forces Schultz more to the left than he would otherwise have gone. And that is, I think, a risk. It's a bet. It's a very clever political strategy, I think, which reads the dynamics of German society quite well. But nevertheless, I don't think he'll split the party, and we see that it looks like he's managing to draw it together, but it's not a strategy without risk. Can we go back to Helen's point about this wider question, since we've got you here and you are the preeminent historian of Germany, that wider question about German power and the way in which history overhangs a rising Germany and the anxieties both inside Germany and outside Germany about what that might mean. So Helen says that the rest of these Western consolidated democracies are in different ways in forms of decline in terms of their power. And Germany may not be. And yet there's always this sense that everybody, Germans and non-Germans, are uncomfortable when Germany is on the rise and the rest of Europe is in some form of decline. I mean, to what extent are current German anxieties being shaped by the, the overhang of German history, do you think? Is it in the background? Is it ever in the foreground? Well, yeah, I thought that was very interesting, what Helen said about the lack of traumatic, of a traumatic caesura in terms of state power in Germany. It's a relatively untroubled story since the 1950s, I suppose, and since it's been a steady rise in the weight that Germany uh, or the influence Germany wields on the world stage, especially since 1990, of course. This upward trajectory has brought with it a certain kind of feel-good factor, a degree of relaxation about Germany's role. But there is a lingering anxiety about, for example, becoming involved in out-of-area operations, on, even on behalf of the, the alliance, the NATO alliance. There's an anxiety about increasing expenditure on, on armaments. 
There's a deep concern about what happens when Germany sort of wields influence alone in public affairs. This is nothing new. I mean, Helmut Schmidt famously said, you know, Germany must sometimes lead, but she must never lead alone. And that is still the case. The Germans always seek to work from within a kind of unilateral club of, of close associates and partners if they possibly can. That's one of the reasons for the intimacy of the Franco-German partnership. There always needs to be someone else involved. I think that to a certain extent, it, it's true then that the Germans are still, you know, working within the magic circle of this of this history. But so is everybody else. I mean, the other states in Europe are at least as impressed by Germany's record as Germany is. I mean, you think about the, the Greek financial crisis, whatever one makes of the management and mismanagement of that crisis by the German political elite, it was very striking how quickly the Greek newspapers and so on turned Germany's hard line on was essentially a rather technical fiscal question into a sort of SS invasion with tanks and, and Merkel wearing an SS uh, uniform and so on. So the Germans aren't the only ones who are operating under the spell of history. I think one of the things that, just to pick up something that Chris said, is, is that has been an important part of the politics of the last few years, though, is, is the demise of the Franco-German alliance. And I think you can, I mean, there's reason to think it goes back in some sense to after 1990, but I think it's particularly acute since Hollande came to the presidency. If you go back to the early management of the, the Greek crisis, as the Eurozone crisis was then, there was this phrase that was used quite a lot of Mercosi. It was a sort of Franco-German axis dictating various things to the Greeks. But actually, that was never the case once Hollande came to the, the presidency. And German power looks more unilateral, not just on the Eurozone, but on another of, of various other EU issues, the refugee crisis being the most obvious example, the agreement with Turkey in, in March 2016. I think it's a problem for Germany that Germany simply does not have an, anything like an equal power in France at the moment. And it's part of the reasons why French politics is like it is, that the Franco-German axis is so weak. It's also another reason why Brexit has had a destabilizing effect. I think Brexit leaves the, this German preponderance you're referring to more exposed than it was before, and that's one reason why the Germans regret the departure of the British, whom they always saw as, you know, pragmatic partners and also as balancers of their own power, in a way that they um, welcomed. That's now gone. And the interesting thing about the German elite is how little they welcome this kind of emergent hegemony. They don't want to wield it. They don't want even to acknowledge it, but ignoring it and pretending you don't have it is going to produce just as many problems as overusing it. Yeah, I mean, that was the point I was just about to make, which is that they're almost trapped in a cycle here, which is as they get more powerful, but won't accept that power and certainly won't behave in ways that suggest that they admit to it. They breed the suspicion of all those people who want to bring up Germany's history again. I mean, at some point, they're going to have to just grapple with it openly. Yeah, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Yeah, that's that's the story of German history. But I think there is a way out, which has been the case for a number of decades, is Europe. The description of Europe as being an extension of French power was always, I think, a bit misleading. What it really is is a way of, I don't know what the right word is, and it, it doesn't mask German power, but it transforms German dominance or German hegemony into a set of rather inoffensive, very technical rules and institutions that are generally put together on a consensual basis where all countries have to sign off on it. And I think the problems that Germany has been facing is that the European Union doesn't look like it did 20, 30 years ago. It's much more dominated by countries, by governments. Questions of power are much more open than they were before. And when you strip away this veneer of, of equality from the way the EU works, you begin to see who calls the shots. And it's no surprise, Germany does very often. 
And so I think the the function of Europe to transform in German power into something more in the interests of everybody is not really working anymore for a number of different reasons. And so I think it is pushing Germany to reconsider a little bit and to, to have to accept its hegemony or dominance are just not popular words. And I think they're not even... I mean, I think it doesn't even correspond to the will within Germany to dominate. It's simply a de facto form of dominance that reflects demographics, economics, and it's not willed, um, yet it appears like that sometimes from the outside. So there's a real sense of being unjustly accused of dominating, which I think is right as well. I was very glad you used the word technical, because I think that, that was one of the great achievements of the EU was, and that's in a sense why it, it, it took, on, took the form that it did, was to take all the sort of passions of, of and con- conflictual potential of politics and of interest politics and power politics and move them to a higher level, a technocratic managerial level, where those passions would be drained out of decision-making process and these would be reached by, you know, quantification, statistics, technical management, and so on. And now, in, in a moment when everybody is, you know, hating on the technocrats and saying we don't need experts and so on, it's a really good idea to remember why technocracy emerges. You know, it emerges as an alternative to something much worse. And that was one of the great achievements of the EU, and I think that Chris Bickerton is right, that the EU's capacity to meet that expectation is fraying at the moment. But it's the consequence of the re-emergence of the, of the state actors more than anything else. But I think that one thing that doesn't quite fit this narrative is the monetary question, because this is where Germany has always been, basically our way or no way, where the European project is concerned, is is Germany has insisted on the primacy of price stability in monetary policy, and essentially everybody else has had to accommodate that. I think in some ways the most interesting thing about what has happened in the last few years in this respect is, is that for the first time, actually, on this matter alone, Germany is kind of being defeated by the fact that the European Central Bank went down the road of quantitative easing and is now setting interest rates at a rate that clearly the German political establishment is not happy with. This is the first time, actually, in monetary matters that Germany has lost. Yet at the same time, it's happening at a time when, in all other matters, German power is rising and becoming problematic for both sides in the way in which we've been talking about. Yes, and these differences have been very cruelly exposed by the Eurozone because the Eurozone was a currency union without any real political traction. And so you went, wound up with a, a ridiculous sort of category error where someone, instead of having you know the foreign minister discussing developments with his Greek counterparts or her Greek counterparts, um, you had Minister Schäuble, the, the finance minister, dealing with the representatives of, of a Greek national democracy as, as if they were merely creditors. This is not a good situation. It's a kind of slippage of um, emerging of categories, which is not been helpful. And that crisis was not at all well managed by the German political elite. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Can I ask you a, a wider question? And you, you're going to have a unique perspective on this. So you, you're in the unusual position of being a historian of Germany who is not German, whom Germans really respect and admire. You make TV programs. You you are a public figure in Germany. And you talk to Germans about their past. What is it that you feel they really want to know about their past? 
that someone like you can tell them? I mean, are they wanting some kind of explanation or even absolution of some aspects of it? I mean, the First World War, where you you explained the complexity of the origins of the First World War, which didn't in any sense let Germany off the hook, but it was balanced in ways that some histories of the First World War have not been balanced. And you found an audience, a really receptive audience for that. Is there a kind of hunger for someone who's not German to tell the history of Germany in a way this is going to sound like too crude a question, that makes Germans feel slightly better about their past? Germans are kind of sweetly and touchingly surprised when anybody shows a really deep interest in their history. And they've been like this since at least the end of the Second World War. And perhaps it's a consequence of the Second World War and of the moral catastrophe of Nazism and the Holocaust and so on, that they've been very attentive to and very respectful of voices from outside about their country. And these voices have not always been voices that were telling them everything was okay. There was a, I mean, Daniel... And I'm not suggesting you're telling them that everything was okay, No, no, I'm not either, but I mean, but Daniel Goldman's book about, you know, Hitler's willing executioners and so on was a massive bestseller. It was denounced by the German historical profession because it was a very bad book from the standpoint of of the historical discipline. But it was an interesting and important book. It was a huge bestseller and he was a very celebrated figure. And yet he was hardly sort of whitewashing the the German history. On the contrary, he he was exposed one of the most hideous and terrifying sort of moments of, of cruelty in the in the history of the Holocaust. So, and there have been many other examples too of British and American historians whose works have been translated immediately into German and who've been taken very seriously. So I think there's that tradition. I think there probably also is a kind of longing for a more balanced, dispassionate account of key episodes, like, for example, the outbreak of the First World War. What was interesting about that particular debate in 2014 on the 100th anniversary was I think that you know it had, it had widely been claimed that nobody cared about the First World War because the, the monstrosity of the Second World War had overshadowed and buried the memory of the First. That turned out to be true with regard to the public sphere in Germany, but not true with regard to privately archived memory, where it turned out that in hundreds of thousands of German families there are you know collections of letters from the front, medals, bits of uniforms, and memorabilia from elderly relatives or deceased relatives who obviously deceased in the case of the First World War, who'd fought on the front then. So the interest in 1914 was much more vivid and much more um, emotionally driven than anyone had expected. So do you feel now, as a historian, one of the challenges we talk about it all the time on this podcast is whether we've entered a new era in politics, this populist moment that something has fundamentally shifted. And actually, so the 20th century had its incredible turmoils, um, And then we had a period of relative stability towards the end that fed into the 21st century. Then maybe from the financial crash of 2008, or perhaps more recently, it looks like the end of history ended and it's all really speeded up again. So that's an American view, maybe a British view, the land of Trump, the land of Brexit. Then you have Germany, which is seeing all of this happening, but as we've talked about, has this underlying continuity. And Angela Merkel, in a way, represents a kind of continuity, a sort of steady-as-she-goes form of politics. Do Germans have a sense, given their own history, that maybe we've overdone this kind of... We're living through these unprecedentedly dramatic times, not just interesting times, but transformative times. Does it look different, do you think, from Germany? Because from Britain and the United States, there is a lot of almost hysterical rhetoric about how yeah this is this is the end of times and i'm assuming that seen from germany it doesn't look necessarily like the end of times 
I think in Germany, people don't want it to be the end of times. Well, I don't think we want it particularly to be the end of times. I know some people do. <laughs> and, what, and what you don't want, perhaps you're, you're less uh, less inclined to, to see. That's it's one possibility. I, I want to come back to a point that Helen made about stability. There is a German obsession with stability, and it manifests itself in instinctive monetarist bias of German financial policy. You know, the, the desire to have a solid and stable currency foundation and in the, the need for social pacts and social stability. So the Germans are allergic to the prospect of major upheavals and discontinuities. They want stability at all costs, and they will continue to pursue that sort of policy, I think, for the foreseeable future. How great as azure this is is really difficult to say. I think in terms of the international system, it's certainly the return to something older. It's a return to multipolarity and a departure, obviously a definitive departure from the bipolar stability, both from the bipolar stability of the Cold War and from the unipolar Washington-dominated world of you know, 1990 to 2007. And that's all in the past now, and we're now in an authentically multipolar and extremely unpredictable and dangerous world. And this is putting pressure on all decision-making centres, not in, in Europe and, and elsewhere. So finally, then, we've got elections coming up in Germany. We might, if you're around, we might get you back to talk about what happens then. But we try not to ask people to make predictions on this podcast because we don't have a great track record, although actually Helen and Chris Bickerton are the only two people who seem to have called anything right, the rest of us less so. But we've been talking about Schultz with his amazing 100% coronation and the rest of it. But presumably the balance of probability is still that Angela Merkel will remain in office through to the end of this year or not? You're looking, I mean, certainly at the start of the year, she seemed to be the one point of electoral stability, probably in a a sea of change. Do we now think that she may also be swept away? I think it's very, very hard to call, partly because, as Chris Bickerton said earlier, you know, we don't really know yet what Martin Schultz stands for in a lot of questions. So the all the colouring in still has to be done. But that's exactly the conversation we've been having about Macron. He may get all the way over the finishing line without ever particularly filling it in. But that's possible too. He, he, the, the, the sort of revivalist prayer meeting factor may just, carry him just right carry the, the chance through. And then people say, what have we elected? <laughs> These yeah. things can happen. And maybe that will happen. It's true that, you know, if you compare Angela Merkel's demeanour when she opted to go for this further term, she she seemed tired, and somebody remarked that when, if you switched off the the sound on the television and watched her making this announcement that she was going to be a candidate again for the chancellorship, then it looked as, a little bit as if she was reading out her life insurance policy. Her heart didn't really seem to be in it. Whereas Schulz is, you know, he bounds around, he's jumping and bouncing everywhere. He's he's full of zeal for this job. He really wants this job, and that's quite infectious. It's a very hard thing to call. Uh, she's been a very effective and calm leadership figure. She's made lots of mistakes, but as leaders do. But she's been a, a very calm presence in German and European politics. And I think people will be grateful for that. I think people will also come around to the view that Schultz is not going to be a big break with Merkel's policies. In practical terms, not very much separates them. So in the end, it will be business as usual, whoever wins. So finally this week, and we're going to do this briefly now, but we're going to definitely come back to this. But I mentioned it last week, and we want to talk about it. We try and talk about interesting, surprising elections as they happen in real time. And not the weekend we've just been through, but the weekend before that. In Uttar Pradesh in India, there was the first serious test of the Modi government. And Maha, who's with us, is going to say a bit more about this. But the Modi government has been thought to be under a huge amount of pressure because of his policy, which is now a few months old, of essentially removing the two large denomination banknotes from the Indian economy, which is a cash-based economy, causing, for want of a better word, chaos. So you have a populist politician presiding over chaos, 
and then the voters get their chance to say what they think of him because it's very much a personality-based system but also his party and it turns out they love him is that a fair summary maha he he won a resounding victory on a very populist platform uh, including an anti-islamist platform in Uttar Pradesh Right. So there were five states that held legislative assembly elections this month, of which Uttar Pradesh is the largest. It's the largest state in India. And it's an important test state for a lot of his policies because it's a very poor state. It's a very populous state. It's a predominantly rural state. And it's a state with a long history of Hindu-Muslim tension and Hindu-Muslim violence. And so it's a state in which the combination of policies that Modi represents had the potential to be very popular. But on the other hand, because it's a rural state, because it's a poor state, it's a state where most people are operating primarily in the cash economy. And so removing the two largest banknotes, that amounted to removing something like 86% of the currency in the country immediately invalidated overnight hit really hard in that part of the country. And causing people to panic about their savings and, and simply their ability to get by, right? Yeah, day, I mean, day huge lines outside of ATMs. I mean, absolute chaos. And yet, this is a an enormous victory. I think this is the largest victory in Uttar Pradesh since the 1970s, when Indira Gandhi was at her most, you know, sort of popular peak. And we should say it was a victory over her party, the yes. Congress party, and indeed her, her, grandson, her grandson, who now uh, looks like he's more or less finished as a national politician. He's been more or less finished for a long time, and yet he doesn't seem to go. Okay. And we can talk about that Congress. I mean, part of this is that Congress, because it remains basically a dynastic party of the Nehru Gandhi family, has a very hard time fighting back against this. If, if you're dealing with a populist politician, then Modi, unlike somebody like Trump, genuinely does come from poverty. His father was a tea seller. He makes a big deal out of that. It's easy for him to run against a party that's led by this political dynasty of, you know, very wealthy people, mostly educated abroad. So that, I mean, is definitely part of what's taking place here. But I think it's interesting that in a state where these policies have hit so hard, where it should have been possible for the Congress to campaign against demonetization, they not only won, but they won this huge three quarters majority. And I think that suggests, and some of the reporting that's come out since the election suggests that poor people in Uttar Pradesh are very happy to vote for the BJP, even if they themselves are suffering economically, if they believe that elites, whatever that means, are suffering more. And the way that this currency policy was introduced was that we are cracking down on rich businessmen and black money. And the the thing about this is that very quickly, within a week, the business paper started to report that actually lots of large corporations, lots of political parties, and lots of well-connected investors had been moving currency out of the country in the weeks leading up to this move, which means that probably actually it didn't hit elites that hard because lots of elites knew it was coming. And the BJP's electoral coalition includes lots of center-right business people, most of the large corporations and their executives backed the BJP at the last general election. So in that sense, it's a kind of weird electoral coalition of working class populists and the business elite. And what was interesting about this election in Uttar Pradesh is that they were able to kind of make that work, right? The working class voters in Uttar Pradesh seemed to think it was totally fine as long as elites were suffering, even though it didn't seem like elites were suffering. And even though elites still seemed to back the BJP by a huge margin, right? Okay, and I don't want to make the mistake of suggesting that Indian politics is only interesting for what it might suggest about our politics. Of course, it's really interesting and important in its own right. It may be more important, actually, than our politics. But nonetheless, 
attempts have been made to draw a wider lesson here. One of which is that the hope that incompetence, broadly, will undermine populism, that may be a slightly false hope in that populism may, at the moment, anti-elitist populism, have traction that takes it well beyond being damaged by incompetence. There's also, and it relates to what we were just talking about earlier, I mean, it does fit into this broader story about the decline of the centre-left, if if the Congress party can be, you know, traditional dynastic, and centre-left politics does often become dynastic in the end. Look at Hillary Clinton. Dynastic politics of the centre-left. But do you think that we should think that there are wider lessons from the Indian story about populism, including possibly Trump populism, an alliance, you know, say this was a vote in the Rust Belt of the United States, an alliance between working-class populism and certain kinds of anti-elite, elitist politics, that this populism may have more legs than people have given it credit for? You know, I happen to be in India on fieldwork, both in the run-up to the last general election and then for a good chunk of Modi's first year in office. And when you would talk to kind of business elite types that had backed the BJP on the assumption that kicking out the centre-left was going to lead to more pro-corporate, more pro-Indian business policies, and there has been you know, quite a lot of that out of the Modi government. There's a kind of make in India campaign that's a little bit like what, you know, sort of is happening with Trump. Um, In the States, seem to imagine that their support was going to temper the more ethno-nationalist parts of the Modi populist agenda. And I think what you're seeing coming out of the regional elections is not only does having all that business support not have any effect on the degree to which ordinary people are willing to vote for this kind of candidate. But it also, I think, means that the business people have placed their bets wrong, because immediately after winning this legislative assembly in the largest state, now as the majority party in the legislative assembly in that state, they get to pick a chief minister to run that state. And British listeners in particular should know that India has a very strongly federalized system. So local chief ministerships matter a lot. Modi himself was the chief minister of Gujarat for a long time before he became prime minister. Lots of important policies set the local level. And they have chosen as the chief minister of that state, a very important figure on the far right of Hindu nationalism, who, you know, has been investigated by the police a number of times and is involved in inciting all kinds of Hindu Muslim violence. And so they've picked somebody who represents a lurch very far to the right. And I think that the BJP is taking this as an endorsement of that part of their agenda. And I think the idea that elite corporate support for these types of candidates because they might promote certain business interests of that country abroad, is not going to work as a way of curtailing the parts of authoritarian populism that are just nakedly racist. We are definitely going to come back to this. And I think we, we, we also need to talk about the fact that this is not just about Modi. Duterte in the Philippines, we hear about him in the West as this, you know, he's basically portrayed as a monster. He's fantastically popular. Erdogan in Turkey is currently incredibly popular. And there is clearly something going on. It may not last. The populists are more popular than people realised. We're going to do that. We're not going to do that next week, though, because next week I'm going to be talking to Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6, about Europe, about NATO, and about where he thinks the real threats are to our security. It may not be a particularly cheerful chat, but do please join us for that. Thank you for rating us on iTunes. We are on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Do please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. I 
No, it was a long, complicated story that I won't bore you with. It was just Weetabix, so. <laughs> just Weetabix. Well, I want to pick up on, on Chris's point about Weetabix. I thought that was very interesting, and Helen's observations about breakfast. I mean, I think we can, we're, we're working our way towards a consensus here. <laughs> and, um, well, uh, I had some blueberries, and uh, I had a cup of very hot black coffee, and, um, and a little crispy roll <laughs> with, some, um, with some truffle sewn salami. Oh, wow, really? really? <laughs> that somehow, yeah. I don't think anyone's ever no. going to top that. No. 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 Just join us next week. I say just. It sounded so needy. <laughs> this is, I'm terrible at this part of this. Thank you for rating us on iTunes. We are on. Oh, I'm so bad at this after two years. Thank you so much. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.